Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Hey, everybody, it's been a while since uh, we got a, a new episode up, but uh, we're in for a treat today. I am going to be joined by Melanie Treesick King. She has a website called Thinking is Power, and we're going to talk about all kinds of things, critical thinking. Um, starting today's episode, we're going to split it into two episodes, actually, because we covered a lot of information. It's going to be talking about what is science, why do we need science, why is it reliable, how is a scientific consensus built, and a little bit of information about how do we know who the real experts are and what information we can trust. Um, so yeah, sit back and enjoy. Morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. This is awesome. Of course. This is really exciting. So let's just start with um, a brief introduction of yourself for our listeners. Uh, my name is Melanie Teresa King. Uh, I am, um, my background is actually plant ecology, and uh, I started teaching at a community college. And I, actually, my research was uh, fire ecology, which was really fun. Uh, in succession. But anyway, um, I uh, got a job teaching at a community college, which I adore. Um, and I focus on non-major science courses. So these are courses for people who don't want to be scientists when they grow up, but have to take a science course as part of their broad undergraduate liberal arts education. And I was teaching intro bio and like, I'm a biologist. I think that stuff is interesting, but um, eventually I thought with as many ways as I tried to make it interesting to students, the stages of mitosis and protein synthesis, you know, they're going to remember it for an exam, regurgitate it, forget it, and then only remember how much they hated science class. <laughs> so I felt yeah. like I was not doing them a service. Yeah, actually, one of my favorite party questions, I must be a load of fun at parties, is to ask people, what do you remember from your college science class? <laughs> And I get these really blank stares, like nothing. The funny thing is, um, my answer to that question probably would have been mitosis and how much I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so then I, I created a course in its place to, um, in my estimation, what I wanted to do was if I had a single semester to teach the average person what they should know about science and how it works and why it matters, um, then what would that course look like? And I started with that end goal in mind and I worked backwards. And um, the course now, um, I, I mean, I, I know I'm biased, but I think it's a great course, but it's um, focuses on what I call skills. I know um, skills. So um, critical thinking, information literacy and science literacy. And um, to do that, I use um, uh, pseudoscience and science denial and misinformation in the classroom, because how can people tell the difference between good science and bad science if they can't um, see examples of pseudoscience? Um, I also uh, use a lot of inoculation theory, which is having students create misinformation to um, learn the techniques. Uh, we could talk about that if you like, but um, it's super fun uh, and, and it helps students, you know, once they learn how to create the techniques themselves, they can see it better. Um, and I also give them a toolkit to evaluate claims. Uh, it's a toolkit that I, I summarized as the acronym FLOATER. Um, and uh, we work all semester on understanding the different um, rules and 
getting students to practice evaluating claims. I try to include as many claims as students might see in their day-to-day -day lives, but I'm the, the basic premise is, um, you know, the quality of your life, I'm stealing this quote um, from Chicken Vaughn. It's a great book. Um, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your decisions. And the quality of your decisions is determined by the quality of your thinking. And so um, to bookend that, um, Richard Feynman says the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you were the easiest person to fool. No one can fool us like we can. And so to better think, to better make decisions, we have to understand our own biases and our own illogical thought processes and our own tendencies towards certain information and why we fall for misinformation and then how to spot it so nobody takes advantage of us. So that's the short of my background. Yeah, I find... I find lately too, there seems to be everywhere you look, there is misinformation or science denial in action. <laughs> like everyone has strong opinions on things. And, and I think you can do anything from nuclear power to vaccinations to um, late, the, the things in my brain lately. Now my brain's shutting off, but so many so many topics where people feel strongly about it and they want other people to feel the way they do. I'm really glad you brought that up uh, because um, what you just mentioned are topics that inspire really strong feelings. And um, when I start class, I purposefully don't start with triggering misinformation. Uh, like I don't go in with climate change denial or vaccines or even various forms of alternative medicine that people get really attached to. What I try and do is start with things that people, like I, I literally start classes, class with uh, witchcraft. So nice. my, my very first, um, I'm trying to get students to understand how we come to our beliefs. We talk about uh, the, the witch trials in Europe and how people were so convinced that witches were causing illnesses and um, you know casting spells that uh, caused uh, animals to die and um, you know hailstorms that killed crops. They were so convinced that they tortured and killed people. And obviously, their best evidence tended to be people accusing someone um, or torture. And we think that our experiences are good information. And these people felt so strongly, like I know what I saw. That witch did that. And you can't convince me otherwise. And so, you know, the students are able, most of my students don't believe in witches. So they're able to look back and go, we, they really did believe that. What was their evidence and how good mm -hmm. was their evidence? Yeah. And of course, the goal is to think about their own thinking. But witches is a great place. To uh, hundreds of thousands of people died. Yeah. Um, and, so yeah and I remember, I remember hearing stories um from witch trials where it was like oh yeah they'd tie them up and throw them in a river and if they survived they were a witch if they died they weren't I'm like of course they died <laughs> I don't understand this this is not a good way to figure that out like of course they died but, but they thought yeah. that was foolproof yeah yeah to them apparently the reasoning was that um uh okay so let me get this right um if you'd been baptized uh then the water would accept you. But if you worship the devil, the water would not accept you. And so if they put you in the water and you floated, you were a witch, which meant you're going to have to, you're going to die. Right. But if you sank, you weren't a witch, you were dead, but you weren't a witch. <laughs> Either way you <laughs> die. <they> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny sometimes when you 
hear old stories like that and you're like i don't understand the logic there that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever um but yeah we might you might have covered this briefly but i'll ask it again just to be sure so what what brought you to wanting to educate people on critical thinking because i feel like from someone who's taken a lot of science courses it's not it's not really something that we were taught like in university we touched on it a little bit I, i like to think i'm a pretty good critical thinker i might be wrong in that maybe my assumptions about myself are incorrect um but i do think i'm a fairly well-versed critical thinker so like what made you want to teach people that yeah that's a really good question um at my college i think like a lot of colleges if it's a science class it is automatically considered a critical thinking class and I have discovered that that assumption is wrong, um, but I did not discover that assumption was wrong until I did something different. I mean, like you have taken a lot of science classes and um, I did not realize how much I didn't know until I went through the process of trying to figure out what would be the most useful to help people navigate this world. And so um, learning it for myself was really eye-opening because I thought, I didn't learn this and, and not just critical thinking, like basic process of science stuff. I think we assume even our science majors will sort of absorb how science works through the ether, you know, like um, you, know, you get to graduate school and then you're, you're doing your own research, but, but even then, I mean, nobody really, unless you take a philosophy of science class, it's very rare to have someone explain why we're doing what we're doing. They, so here's what I find. I also teach another class, um, environmental science, which I have a love-hate relationship with that class um, because it's a lot of facts again. But that class, like most science classes, starts with the scientific method. And then it goes through all the things that we know. But there is no scientific method when right? I'm doing quotes for listeners. There's no single scientific method. There's no single way to do science. There's a lot of different ways to do science. The question is, um, how many different ways can we test something? What is the value of that evidence? What is the quality of that evidence? And how does it fit with other pieces of evidence? It's much more complicated than we make it out to be. And so by presenting people with a, here's the recipe for scientific method, and then here's all the things that we know, of course, people are confused. They're they're waiting for science to prove something or to offer facts and certainty. And science doesn't do that. But I didn't, I never really had that explained to me. And so what I wanted to do with the class was after I discovered the own flaws in my thinking, the own, the holes in my education and my knowledge, um, really help people. And um, I'm sorry, taking a tangent here, but I started teaching this class before the pandemic. And in the pandemic, we all saw science play out in real time. Like yes. new virus. There's all, we don't know by definition, it's a new virus. But then everybody was like, um, the uncertainty of it all. And the, what seems like wishy-washy language and, you know, the recommendations changing, you know, people changing their minds, all of that seemed fishy. It seemed like, well, science provides proof and certainty. So we're just going to wait for that to do anything. So I hope that um, that was a long-winded way of answering your question. I didn't know. And hopefully by learning those things and 
putting it in a course, um, others learn what I didn't know. It's, it's funny when you mentioned that about um, the pandemic and things changing as we went along, because I don't know how many times I would try to explain that to friends of mine who were like, well, they changed their opinion on this, so they must not know what's going on. And I'm like, no, you're seeing science happen for real. We don't usually see it happen in real life, real time. Like this is all changing so quickly. And the number of times I said that to people, I'm like, no, no, this is, this is okay. <laughs> like, this is what, this is what they're supposed to do. It's all right. <laughs> I don't understand why changing your mind with evidence is a bad thing. That should be celebrated and rewarded. And you know what? I was wrong. Yeah. Like, that's great. Yeah. Change my mind. The evidence <laughs> had me change my mind. Um, which actually is a really good segue into kind of what um, I want to get into. So like, what is science and why do we need it? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that because I feel like I was going to go down that tangent and I didn't. I got stuck on another one, which I tend to do. Sorry. Um, I do that too. Yeah. I ramble. God, uh, but it's all good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, science is a process for testing our ideas, for trying to figure out what reality is. Um, and we need science. We, back to my environmental science class. So I start with the scientific method and I go into all the facts that we learn about science. And the problem with that is I haven't established why we need science. So with my, with my new course, uh, I call it Science for Life. What I do is I don't get to the process of science until after the midterm. I start with how we come to our beliefs. You know, people really believed in witches. What was their evidence? What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Where did that come from? And then I go into the limits of perception and memory. So our experiences can fool us. We think that I know what I saw or I know what I experienced is solid evidence. Like that's the best kind, right? We think that um, I know homeopathy works because I tried it, or um, I know ghosts are real because I saw one. But there, Feynman again said that you were the easiest person to fool. Anecdotes are actually not the best evidence, and we easily fool ourselves. And then I go into um, I provide the students with a toolkit, um, and then um, the kinds of fallacies and biases that um, cause our thinking to go astray, and then I actually get to information literacy. Um, because with information, of course, what we tend to do is just use information to confirm what we already think is true, as opposed to finding out what might be true. Um, and then I get into science after the midterm. All that's to say, um, when, when we just start right in with the scientific method, as a lot of science classes do, day one, scientific method, and here's this science, is we don't establish a justification for why we need it in the first place. And the reason we need it is because we're biased and our thinking is flawed and our perceptions are flawed and we can easily lead ourselves astray. And so we're trying with the process of science to figure out what really is true, which is to stand out of our own way, get out of our own way and test these ideas. In all of human history, it wasn't until like the last few hundred years that the process of science really started to give us that we started to even have the process of science and give us knowledge, which means that this thinking does not come naturally to us. Like right. we don't 
we're not born good thinkers. We're not born scientists. We're born biased and illogical and irrational. And so science helps us avoid that. Yeah, we're born survivalists. <laughs> How do I live through this? And I don't care. <laughs> I just want to survive. Um, so it kind of leads it kind of leads into like how do we um I know we talk a lot here in my community about scientific consensus um because right now the international scientific consensus is that geological repositories for nuclear waste is the most responsible way to go so like how does the science community build knowledge and build a consensus and why is that reliable um that is an excellent question so um, science is a social process in that um, each scientist is uh, trained and does their best to be as unbiased as possible. Um, when a scientist does their work, they submit it to their peers, either at conferences or in peer-reviewed journals, probably both. And that evidence then is evaluated by other scientists who are all incentivized to prove each other wrong. So <clears throat> most of us, when we go through life, we think um, we arrive at a conclusion and we've done so in an illogical way, but we don't realize that. What we know is we have evidence for that. And so we tend to use motivated reasoning and confirmation bias to find evidence to support what we think is true. The process of science is institutional disconfirmation in that each scientist obviously wants, um, if they have a pet theory or a pet hypothesis, I should say, um, they, they think they have evidence for it, um, but they should try and find evidence for why they're wrong. And actually, I, I tell my students this too. If you want to be more right, a better way to do that is not to look for evidence that you're right. It's to look for evidence that you're wrong. If you're wrong, what would you expect? And actually seek out opinions different than yours and try to test them against what you think is true. So other scientists are doing that as well. And, and so the system the social system that is science is a bunch of scientists each trying to prove each other wrong and that's how a scientist makes a name for themselves if if i could just take a another tangent here into the conspiracy nature because a lot of people will say that um uh, a scientific consensus is like a, a bunch of, like a vote or they all agree because they have funding to do so or um right so I just had this wonderful conversation with my students yesterday because I don't think a lot of people understand who does science and how. So science isn't done, um, science is done in academia and private institutions and public institutions, like there are people, I'm in the state of Massachusetts. So there's people at Harvard doing research and there's people at UMass uh, Amherst that are doing research. And there's people at Iowa State that are doing research and there's people in um, Canada that are doing, right. So, um, in academia, they're doing research. There's also research being done at hospitals and um, in private institutions. So um, there's um, industry does research and the government does research. 
And each of these has different scientists involved in it in a way that is, um, um, each one is incentivized for something slightly different. They want to make a name for themselves. And um, to do that is to offer the best evidence that their peers will accept. And everybody else wants to be prove them wrong. There's also no boundaries to science. In the United States, at least, especially for medical um, issues. I mean, we have a for-profit healthcare system and it's kind of a mess um, and it's very expensive, but if you have money, it's great care. But so people <laughs> then will think, well, doctors are just uh, incentivized to keep you sick because then that gives them more money. Well, actually that's not really how it works. And also the United States is the only country that does that. What is the incentive in Canada to do that? Big pharma. What's the incentive in <laughs> <laughs> right. But like the government of New Zealand doesn't want to pay American big pharma. They want to reduce the cost of the care for their citizens. Yep. So the phrase herding cats does not even come close to describing this process because it's a bunch of people who have different incentives who are all trying to prove each other wrong. If that whole community in all the different places they work, in all the different countries in the world, and all the different incentives, if they come to a point where they agree on what the evidence is telling them, it is a huge deal. And could the consensus be wrong? Of course it could. How do we know the consensus is wrong? Evidence. If a scientist wants to make a name for themselves, the best way to do that is to prove the consensus wrong. Like, in, so in the United States, for example, one of the ones I hear quite frequently is that there's a cure for cancer that's being hidden because big pharma wants to make money, right? Yeah, so we talked through that everything too. that we just. <laughs> but like, I'll ask my students: if you had the cure for cancer, what would it take to get you to keep it secret? And the students are like. I wouldn't. Well, why not? Well, I have loved ones dying of cancer. Okay. Why else? Why not? Um, well, I can make a lot of money and fame and fortune from curing cancer. Indeed, you could. Okay. So in this system of probably hundreds of thousands of researchers, there's a great Ben Franklin quote, quote that says three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And now we're trying to involve hundreds of thousands of people. So if all of those experts who are trying to prove each other wrong go, okay, I suppose, yeah, this is probably true. Then that is the best we can possibly do. Now, if you think the consensus is wrong, um, could it be? Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of expertise to know the consensus is wrong, which means there's a really strong chance that you don't know enough to say that the consensus is wrong. But if you really think the consensus is wrong, learn what the experts know and then provide the evidence because experts will listen to the evidence. So, um, you know, in science, um, Naomi Oreskes, for your listeners, um, Naomi Oreskes is uh, an excellent, um, so she's a science historian at Harvard, and she is um, one of the scientists who documented the um, uh, industry involvement in uh, the tobacco, uh, tobacco industry in convincing the American government not to act on the cause uh, tobacco. Right. And then documented the same think tanks, the same so-called scientists, the same money 
involved in climate change denial, amongst a bunch of other things, right? This is a denial machine, an industry machine. Yep. Uh, her book, uh, uh, Merchants of Doubt, is excellent. So after Merchants of Doubt, she was asked, well, then why should I trust science? And so she did a deep dive into that and really did um, uh, her, her book, her latest book, Why Trust Science, is about the social nature of science and how each scientist is trying to prove each other wrong. And when they can come to a consensus, and that actually is the process of science is coming to consensus, then that is the best knowledge available to humans at the time. It's funny um, that you mentioned the tobacco um, industry and all of that narrative because we've actually been told that here um, by some of the some of the individuals who aren't necessarily in favor of a DGR. You know, they say like, "Well, tobacco companies and their scientists all told us that cigarettes were good for us, and look how that turned out." And it is a comparison that people make. Um, and yeah, it's just funny that you bring that up. So I'm like, yeah, it's one that I've heard too. <laughs> Yes. Um, and so I guess then my question comes down to like, I don't want to say normal people because I hate when people say that, um, but people that don't have any expertise or knowledge in certain areas, like how do we find information that's reliable and how do we know what we're looking at is reliable or not? Uh, that That is a wonderful question. Um, <clears throat> so a couple of years ago, I noticed the phrase do your own research was going around and like memed to the point where everybody seemed to be doing their own research. And so I, I wrote a post about how, you know, um, when people do their own research, usually what they're doing is they're going to a search engine and they're typing in what they want to hear. And then they're going to the Google results that tell them what they already believe is true. And they do it when it comes to science too. So then they'll go to Google Scholar and they'll type in the leading phrases and they'll go to the top couple of studies that tell them what they think is true. The problem with that, of course, is that, um, you know, science is, um, science is messy. Uh, science is, um, it, it is um, not a genius in a laboratory that has like this eureka moment. I mean, there's a couple times in history, I suppose that that's happened, but the vast majority of the time, that's not what it is. And so um, uh, it's actually in science, it's called the single study syndrome, where um, people will use a single study to support what they think is true and not look at the body of evidence. You can find a single study that says almost anything that you think is true. The question is, what does the body of evidence say? And the body of evidence is the consensus and or the position of experts. So I wrote that and then I thought, well, you know, people actually do want good information. And so when when people, if someone wants to do their own research, what is a more responsible way of doing that that gets them closer to what we actually know? And so um, I wrote a follow-up on that, which is basically the value of consensus and then how to find it, if there is one. Now, there's not always a consensus, but if there is, again, it's probably the most reliable knowledge available to us. So um, <clears throat> some things to look for. Um, so a consensus, when we define a scientific consensus, there's a few different ways to do that. One of them is um, the consensus of experts. So literally, if you ask experts, do you agree with um, humans have evolved over time or that humans are causing climate change, right? We have 
survey results for those. Like John Cook did a great um, study, I think it was in 2012, about the consensus of climate change. And what he did in part was, um, what do experts say? But then also, what does the literature say? And to get to what the literature says, this is avoiding the single study syndrome. Um, what I tell my students is to use as neutral search terms as possible. Don't lead Google, because if you lead Google, it will give you what you ask. So neutral. Um, and then search terms like meta-analysis or systematic review. Um, uh, that's a better way to do it. Um, of course, there can be biased meta-analyses and systematic reviews, the garbage in, garbage out phrase. Um, another great way to do it is to look for things like um, position statements or um, consensus papers. So for example, um, with climate change, um, the IPCC, uh, the Inter uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, meets every few years and they uh, have experts in their field who evaluate the body of evidence on climate change and then write a report based on what we currently know. So the IPCC's report is a consensus report. It's what's currently in the literature. What does the literature tell us about the causes of climate change and the consequences of climate change? Um, so the IP, climate change is one of the most um, heavily documented consensus fields, uh, but with something like uh, nuclear power, you could search things like, um, <clears throat> experts will be um, members of different uh, societies and different professional organizations. I don't know nuclear energy very well, so let me speak to my own field. Um, with something like ecologists, they'll be members of the Ecological Society uh, of America. They will, um, you know, there's specific ecology journals like the journal Ecology. What is the journal Ecology's position statement on something like um, uh, the role of fire in uh, prairie succession? What is the um, 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 professional society of ecologists? What is their statement when it comes to things like that? So that is probably the best representation of what a consensus is for any individual field. So the search terms matter and then look for those sorts of buzzwords. And then, um, you know, like, like always, when you get your search results, um, make sure that you go to the reliable ones, like for example, the Ecological Society of America, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, fire sucks dot um, uh, Smokey the Bear. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I guess um, it kind of leads me into into another question that I, I didn't really think of before. But, um, you know, like, how do we know who the experts are? You know, there will be people who are constantly commenting and writing articles and things like that about specific topics. But how do you weed out who are the experts and who aren't because just because someone's writing about it all the time doesn't mean they're actually an expert in that field so like how do you weed that out so an expert should have um relevant degrees in a field and publish research in a field um here's another great resource for your listeners um there is uh, the characteristics of science denial um, is summarized by the acronym FLICK, F-L-I-C-C, which stands for fake experts, logical fallacies, 
impossible expectations, cherry picking and conspiracy theories. It was originally by the Hoofnagel brothers, but um, John Cook has done a great job formalizing it. And actually he has a great game called Cranky Uncle. Um, I was just playing that the other day. I'd never heard of it before. And did you like it? I loved it. Yes. Exactly. So Cranky Uncle helps you learn the techniques of science denial because Cranky Uncle is a science denialist and you learn his techniques and you take him off along the way, right? <clears throat> Let me go back to fake experts. Fake experts is one of the most common science denial techniques and it's because it works. Because people trust experts, but they really trust experts when they agree with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the question is who actually has expertise? Um, a common, um, so uh, Fake, a, a real expert should have relevant degrees in research. But also um, with science denial, um, a common technique is to use um, like a, a magnified minority. So look, you can always find someone with a PhD who has out their ideas, even in a relevant field. Like I'll show my students, um, there is, um, um, forgetting his name right now, but he, he's a prominent AIDS denier. Like he doesn't think the HIV virus causes AIDS, right? I mean, it's like- Bill? Yeah. He, oh God, yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. I, right? There's people with MDs who deny the germ theory of disease, right? So people will deny anything. Um, the question is, um, are they a relevant expert? And are they in line with what the consensus uh, position is? If they're not in line with the consensus uh, position, again, because experts can be wrong. Um, for example, oh God, what is his name? He's So the AIDS denier. Um, let's just go with him for a second. He has the PhD. He's actually a relatively well-established scientist in his field. That is obviously not a position that is in line with everything else we know about HIV and AIDS. Um, so the question is, why is his position different? Listening to him over everyone else weights things in one um, in one direction that that um, the question is, does it deserve it? What he did, as most science deniers and pseudoscientists do, is not. Um, submit their evidence to other experts to try to change their minds. Because again, that's the social nature of science. Scientists are in a social system trying to evaluate evidence um, in different ways, in different formats. What he did is wrote a book. Now he has this great, it's like a 300 and something, it's a huge book, seems like lots of information, but he went straight to the public. Going straight to the public is a warning sign that um, somebody wanted to convince the average person who may not know what, they're, what the process of science is, as opposed to convince other experts. It happens all the time in these different fields. It is, again, one of the most common denial characteristics. So magnified minority or fake expert. Um, if someone is not in line with the consensus, the question is, um, why is that? Do they have the relevant expertise? And most importantly, are they allowing other experts to evaluate their evidence? Or are they just trying to convince people who don't know any better? And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, 
We don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.